Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we'll talk about Babylon 5, Day of the Dead, script by Neil Gaiman, directed by Doug Leffler. The original air date for this episode of the fifth season of Babylon 5 was March 11th, 1998. I don't remember what I was doing, but I was in Madison, Wisconsin. Right. And I was in the army. So that meant I did not actually watch this uh, when it aired, that we can talk about that in just a moment. Uh, Before we get into any of it, we really should say that this was an episode chosen by our Patreon supporters and a a special vote that we had. And this is something that we're going to continue to do. We're going to do this for every break that we take between Sandman volumes as our way of getting at Gaiman's short fiction, his film and TV writing, like we're going to be talking about today, and also some of his single issue or, or limited run comics. And we may even throw some some game and adjacent material on the ballots as well. Uh, and then, of course, eventually, what will be years from now when we're all the way done with Sandman, this is how we'll select our next big read as well, which, you know, maybe that'll be Good Omens. Maybe it'll be American Gods or the, the Books of Magic. It will be up to our Patreon supporters what that will be. This is also how we choose what we cover on most of our shows. And it's really one of the prime benefits of supporting us on Patreon, uh, along with the, the monthly bonus episodes that we do. And there's a back catalog of uh, at least 50 of those episodes at this point. So we would really love for you to join us there if you aren't already supporting us on Patreon. And if you're a Babylon 5 fan, you'll particularly want to check out the episode that Valerie and Glenn covered over on Lower Decks of Passing Through Gethsemane. That was a ton of fun. In fact, I've been doing a lot of Babylon 5 watching this year. Uh, that was actually an episode that was commissioned by uh, one of our Patreon supporters, an extra bonus episode uh, that we did, which was super fun. It was Valerie's first time ever watching any Babylon 5, and that's always a fun thing for me to subject Valerie to a show she has not seen, but that is Star Trek adjacent. Also, just a fantastic episode. That's the one with Brad Dourif uh, that owes quite a bit to uh, J. Michael Straczynski's uh, real uh, fascination with uh, the science fiction, the classic science fiction novel, A Canticle for Leibowitz, which actually, hey, that's also something that I've done uh, that I did over on uh, our show, ATOS. That also was actually a patron commission. So uh, through theme there, I suppose, uh, I'm connecting all of these things. But let's uh, let's talk about this episode a little bit, or maybe actually before we talk about Day of the Dead, let's just talk about Babylon 5 in general. And I know the answer to this question, Brent, because I was there, but for the sake of listeners, What's your experience with Babylon 5? Babylon 5 was one of my can't-miss shows. And given that it was on in the mid-90s and I frequently was very busy, this didn't mean that I actually caught them live. It meant uh, can't-miss in a 1990s sense, which meant I had (laughs) at least one, if not two different VCRs set up, maybe even in alternate locations, uh, scheduled to record key episodes. And I remembered moving in with um, a couple roommates my junior year at college, and I made it very clear that like when this show is on, I do not want to hear you talking to me unless it's commercial i'm serious about this i'm do not try <laughs> i was a big fan of the show um the first season as with the first season of anything is rocky but there were other reasons why babylon 5 was a little bit that way which we can probably talk about in some other episode but uh the other sh- show i was really into at that time was the um similar perhaps 
maybe intentionally similar based on how nefarious you think producers at Paramount are, um, uh, Deep Space Nine. But uh, Babylon 5 was very much uh, in my wheelhouse. It was a nice combination of science fiction tropes that I loved with just enough, like, almost token-esque fantasy thrown in that I also loved. Um, and some really good quotes um, in the scripts that are often written by showrunner John Michael Straczynski, uh, but also uh, the few occasional additional writers that were on the show, like Harlan Ellison and uh, Neil Gaiman. Right, Harlan Ellison actually appearing in this episode, not as a writer, but as the uh, the voice of the uh, non-sentient person, maybe, I guess, character that we get here. Uh, that'll be a fun question to tackle and a fun thing to point out when we when we get into uh, talking about what's happening here in this episode. Yeah, my experience with Babylon 5 was you know, something I only had through you. I was a diehard Star Trek fan and still am. Hey, we have a Star Trek podcast. It's a big thing in my life, uh, but would not have watched this show otherwise, I don't think, because as you said, this was a period in life when we were busy doing things. Uh, so I never watched any TV, uh, certainly by the time Babylon 5 was in there. I never watched any TV when it was live, but I watched quite a bit of Babylon 5 in your basement on, on your VCR. And then after the series had completed, I think at that point I had probably seen a third of it, but probably half of the episodes in seasons one through four. And it was really this fifth season that aired when I had joined the army. And so I saw none of that. Uh, but a little bit after after that, I was able to watch it all straight through and, and absolutely loved it. And it's actually been a long time since I have done a complete rewatch of it. The last time I did that, I know for sure was uh, early uh, 2010. So it's been a decade since I've done that. When was the last time you watched the whole thing through, Brent? Ooh, I don't know if I've watched the whole thing through. <laughs> it might be 20 years since I've watched the whole thing through. Babylon 5 hit a weird thing because you know, the episode we're talking about today, Glenn, is in the fifth season. Um, the first four seasons are kind of building up to and then the occurrences of a great war um, and then uh, liberation of Earth at the end of that war, kind of the scouring of the Shire, if you will. And then the fifth season is just kind of like, and now we're starting something new, but there's still some pieces left. So it's a weird, like, epilogue meets almost reboot, but, like, it's all going on simultaneously. So you've got lots of, like, well, who's that and what are they doing here mixed with, oh, we're doing that plot line that I felt like we don't need to do now. So it was it was a mixed bag, I, I think, the fifth season. Yeah, right. Basically, what happened is that Straczynski was under the impression that they weren't getting renewed for a fifth season. So the season finale to season four is the series finale. And then they got renewed. And, you know, when you're the showrunner, you don't just and you get renewed, you don't just say, yeah, you know what? I finished that story because you're managing everyone's careers, all the the, the actors and the, the writing staff, all of the production crew, the filming crew, all of those people are employed because you have sold the show to a network. And so you are obligated then when you're renewed, right, to say, OK, yeah, I've got something right or to step aside and let someone else take over for you or something like that. So, yeah, we're getting a kind of epilogue or a coda here where he had told the story already that he had pitched to the network, that he said, I want to tell this story. This is the story I want to tell. Uh, he had five seasons mapped out for that, but then did end up telling all of it in, in four, at least most of it. And so scrambled to come up with something here. And yeah, I think most fans would say that, yeah, the first season and the fifth season are the, the weakest entries here, but seasons two through four are some of the best TV that there's been, even you know allowing for uh, some pretty bad early CGI of 
effects and also pretty low budget and you know just general 90sness i guess that uh, making allowances for all of that babylon 5 is super important as a tv show uh, it's a big part of how we get to the landscape of prestige tv that we find ourselves in today where in fact brent the thing that you said earlier about first season's always being rocky now the opposite is true right the first season is always the best season of every show <laughs> and then it just disappoints from there on out and all shows lose viewers after their first season instead of gaining them like the third season being their like height of, of viewership which is where we were which is how we were living in the 90s but it's uh, it's all different now and babylon 5 is a big part of why that is all different but i don't know that's some that's some meta talk about babylon 5 our experiences with it and of course you know the reason we are here is that neil gaiman wrote this episode so let's get into this episode and i think you know we're going to pay particular attention to some of the neil gaiman-ness here but we will go through this and talk about everything that happens on screen and let's start with the the teaser the episode opens up with a, a teaser that sets up both the a plot and the b plot for this episode and the a plot is that the non-human civilization called the Bercari are about to celebrate a holiday and as part of their rituals they need to purchase a section of the station just temporarily but they need to purchase it not you know like lease it for a little while uh, we get to spend a little time with Lando Malari, who's about to become the Centauri Emperor. We'll have more about all of that in a moment. But he's outside his quarters. Uh, there's a Bercari merchant there. I, I, I think he's a merchant anyway. I suppose he might be a priest. It's unclear. But he has some important trinkets for the ritual. <laughs> These are candy skulls. And here is where we learn that the festival is the Day of the Dead. And it is a festival that happens only once every 200 years. And this Bercari dude, I guess we'll say, since it's not clear what his uh, station in life is, this Bricari dude asks Londo who he would most like to meet if he could meet any dead person. This is always a fun question for parties, right? And Londo says that he would like to meet the first Centauri Emperor, and that's it. At this point now, we, we head to the opening credits on this. We'll, we'll actually do the B-plot in a few minutes, but Brent, I guess, right, this is the place where we should do a bit of a primer on Londo and the Centauri, I guess, given that probably... Some of our audience, at least, are totally unfamiliar with Babylon 5. So Londo, who has a magnificent, wonderful kind of fanning clamshell hair going on, um, he is, was for many seasons on the show the ambassador from the Centauri Republic. Um, the Centauri Republic are set up to be a kind of a, an old star empire that's kind of on the wane into the show. And Londo is kind of emblematic of that as kind of the um, aristocratic family that has not for centuries been as kind of privileged as it had been in the past. Um, and he particularly is kind of trying to milk what he can off of um, his own kind of prior successes and more so his family and his position. But he, he originally ends up at Babylon 5 because it's just kind of a, you know, backwater post and it's where you put someone who have really no importance, um, but would be really annoying um, and noisy to have anywhere near the court otherwise. But he's kind of very much in the periphery of the Centauri's um, aristocratic orders. But over the course of the show, he manages particularly through um, some nefarious outside influence offering to assist him to kind of rise in prominence as he becomes um, kind of a, a power broker, literally by having um, access to allies with very strong fleets who can show up and uh, devastate um, adversaries, fleets, as well as planets. Um, and it leads to the ascendancy again of the Centauri uh, Star Empire. Um, I think they're a Star Empire. Um, 
I might just be thinking about Romulans, though. But um, <laughs> let's say they're a star empire. The Centauri Empire, though, again, is an ascendancy, and and they quickly are able to turn border wars into um, uh, striking very much on their side. So where they were uh, on the decline, they are now very much in ascendancy, and Londo is at the heart of this. Londo, when we first meet him, is just, again, he's kind of a, a loudmouthed aristocratic noble who talks a good game, but, you know, he kind of like him, um, depending on how you feel about uh, alcoholics, because um, he clearly, um, you know, hits the sauce a little bit hard. Um, and enjoy spending money down at the casino. But, you know, that there is kind of some moral compass stuff going on there. Um, and so it, it makes us kind of think that d- deep down, maybe he is kind of a good guy. Um, and in particular, one of these things is his relationship with uh, Adira Therese, who shows up in this episode, and a little bit of background on her. So Adira had been um, enslaved by someone um, and sent to seduce Londo so that he she would give up he would give up secrets to her. Um, he um, she falls in love with him though, and he decides he's going to do what he can to help free her, um, and says, you know. I'm going to give you this brooch and you should wear it proudly as a free woman um, and, you know, come back to me one day. So she's kind of the, you know, it's almost the hooker with a heart of gold kind of trope in a way. Um, nonetheless, he uh, uh, she is kind of the love of his life um, who uh, he has not seen for some time. Um, and then when she is coming back to him, she is poisoned in route. Um, and due to some deception, um, he f- thinks that an adversary of his in the Centauri Republic, uh, is responsible for it. And so then he enlists, um, re-enlists the aids of, um, some of the nefarious assistance that he was getting before, uh, to strike vengeance. And this assistance he was getting before was all done through the character of Mr. Morton and is a puppet for, the you know evil forces of the shadows it's easy to remember the shadows equals bad um <laughs> so uh that makes it easier for you but mr morden um who also sounds like uh he's some kind of arthurian uh bad person yeah his name means death his name means death he's got death in his name yes. right he's and he works for the shadows <laughs> he's he's not good yeah maybe the thing we should say about babylon 5 in general just taking a step back here yeah. is that you know if you've not seen babylon 5 this story is you know it tells a single story over all five of these seasons the bulk of it wraps up in season four as we, we talked about earlier but this is a story about geopolitics this is a story that imagines the 19th century great game uh, between among the the european empires that controlled most of the globe uh, and were scrambling to control Central Asia and Africa and uh, posturing and positioning against each other while trying to stave off an actual war against each other, all of which ends up leading to the First World War. That's the story we're getting here, except it's in space. And also, we, we have Cthulhu space people. Those are the shadows. And then we also have space elves. We're going to get some space elves later. And also space rangers, some of whom are space elves and some of you, some of whom are human. So those are sort of the elements that we that we get here. And you you said earlier, you know, you're confusing Brent the uh, whether or not the the Centauri are a, uh, a Centauri Republic or they're the Centauri Star Empire. And you know, that's the Romulan Star Empire from Star Trek, right? Is the joke there? But of course, the point is, hey, the Centauri actually are space Roman. 
humans, just like the Romulans are. So that's where the confusion is. But the Centauri are also space Edwardian Britons, right? Who are watching their empire just not be as efficient and as powerful as it used to be, but without any ability to really pinpoint any particular thing that is going wrong or that has gone wrong. There's just a, a type of decline that is setting in here uh, in the 20th century. The well, in the cold during the Cold War, anyway, we would have called this imperial overreach. And you know, Londo is trying to to fix it. He's trying to save it. He's trying to be the hero, and he makes a bad deal and ends up dooming his own people. Yep, he makes a bad deal with uh, with Mister Morden, um, who's connected with the shadows. And the shadows are kind of like if Sauron was uh, more plotting and slow. I guess he's still building <laughs> up his forces and kind of striking only at night, kind of thing, um, rather than taking the field in vast numbers. So it's 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 geopolitics, but also with kind of a cold war that is breaking, but only on one side. So we have, you know, the nefarious, you know, Soviet menace in some ways where they're just going to show up all of a sudden and, and, and take your Crimea. <laughs> right. Another parallel, actually, probably is Game of Thrones or A Song of Ice and Fire, if you prefer, which is a, another story about political machinations that then also has this fantastical element that is external to that, that comes in and shakes up all of the machinations. And both things have to be dealt with. And one of them is going to get wrapped up or sewed up before the other. Uh, and of course, George R. R. Martin was writing the first book, uh, was writing A Game of Thrones while this show was on the air. Uh, and so presumably was watching it and taking some inspiration, you know, no, you know, probably subconsciously, of course, but there's, there's, there's something to the parallels there, I think. Well, we should just talk also about the direction that this episode is going, right? Let's look at how Gaiman is crafting this story, because it is pretty clear to us, the audience, that there are going to be real dead people visiting some of our characters. But of course, you know, this is clear to us because, hey, we've read some science fiction and some fantasy before, but it is not at all clear to other characters in this story. Also, they don't know their characters in a story. So there's that too. But this is a great way to do suspense. But Gaiman is also setting us up a bit here because Londo is not going to meet the first emperor, though this will be a gag in a few scenes. And no one else either is going to meet anyone famous. And of course, when we do play this game at parties, right, the idea always is to say which famous or historical person you would want to meet. But I think the reality is that if we, uh, you know, we're actually given the opportunity to spend a few hours with a dead person, any dead person, we get to pick, most of us would pick someone who used to be in our lives, but isn't anymore, right? We would pick someone we miss. And, and that's really what this story is going to be about. Yes. Although there's a couple weird, well, there's one particular maybe exception to that in this particular story, but yes, that is generally how this goes is that everyone is visited by someone who they um, deeply miss um, from their past. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to do that one last and I'm going to have some, some questions <laughs> about that, about what, what choices were made and, and, and why. And, you know, this is what the episode is going to be, or at least the A plot anyway, is going to be this. And so I think rather than do a scene by scene, which is usually what Valerie and I do when we're doing Star Trek episodes, I think it's gonna be better for us to look at the four characters who end up spending the night with a dead person, uh, but to look at them separately, to treat them as little vignettes, to treat this in some ways as almost a kind of short story collection here. And then we can do the B-plot, and then we can pull the whole thing together at the end. And I think we should start with Londo, right? Since we have already met him and we've had a bit of a primer on him, uh, that we will, you know, maybe need a little more backstory that you've, you've talked already about uh, Adira. So we might be set for that. But even before we get to that, let's just say a few things about this 
ritual. So I, I don't know, Brent, is there anything that we have not said about this ritual that, that people ought to know before we get into these vignettes? Well, I thought it was fascinating and very uh, Neil Gaiman, magical realism, stressing on kind of the uh, Western view of kind of magic with a CK at the end uh, to have that um, the property line is looks like it's chalk on the floor that is kind of, you know, laying out where the summoning circle is to divide <laughs> what is uh, Brook. Brakir, uh, the homeworld of the Brakiri, and what is Babylon 5. And it, it's only going to last until sunrise, we are told. Um, and so we know that there is a finite bounded period of time um, in which people are basically going to be trapped. In most of our characters, um, well, we know at least one of them is literally trapped in his quarters. And we know that uh, people can't physically get into uh, this space from outside um, who are not on the part of the station that is leased. And uh, as you mentioned, a lot of the decorations look like they were probably bought at a day of the dead kind of um, market. There was a comment about how um, a lot of the things are composed of sugar. They're for kids, um, not for anyone else. Cause uh, you, rot your teeth. Uh, but there's also discussion about the fact that this all relates to the this comet moving through and that the comet is is a symbol of death. And so usually it's kind of this ominous thing. But the saying that the Bakiri say to particularly to Londa Malari um, when setting this uh, whole thing up for everyone is may the comet bring you wisdom tonight. So the Bakiri seem to have this ritual surrounding this one day of the dead. Uh, it occurs at night because they're a nocturnal race. So their day is night and that by engaging with dead beings, let's just say that for now, for the sake of argument, um, that, is a means of perhaps gaining some kind of wisdom. And so the blessing is, may the comet bring you wisdom tonight. Um, and the Bakiris seem very excited about this whole thing. They are extremely excited. I guess there are a lot like people who are really into um, kind of in the US uh, Halloween prior to Halloween. <laughs> yes, I resemble that for sure. This is how how I get when it is nearly Halloween. And by nearly Halloween, I mean August, you know, <laughs> like I start getting this way in August. Yeah, this ritual is very cool. I mean, the whole set about this is cool. So they've only got uh, in the Brakir star system uh, or the, you know, the star system where the planet Brakir is, they have this one comet and it is on a 200 year um, period. It only comes every 200 years. We don't know how long Brakir live, but it is probably not 200 years. So this is probably something that happens only once every few generations or something like that, right? No one sees the comet uh, twice in their lifetime would be my guess. And they have this ritual around it. And, and presumably, right, it is the comet that actually does something that creates that brings dead people back in some way. We are never going to find out technically what is happening because, as you said, it's magical realism, not science fiction. I mean, this is one of Gaiman's few forays into something that that even has the furniture of science fiction. And he, of course, went and told a magical <laughs> realism story, right, as soon as he could, uh, could twist it to that. So we don't really know what the mechanism is or even if it is something about the comet that's doing it or if the priests are, are actually doing something and it's just something that they do only when the comet comes. We have no idea what the, the mechanics of this are, but there is this really cool bit of the, the metaphysics here where 
anything that is Brakiri owned will count as being on Brakir. And so that is why they buy a section of the space station from the you know station commander so that it will be able to actually be metaphysically transformed into Brakir, the planet Brakir. And people, the Brakiri people on the station will be able to participate in this ritual, that they will be able to be visited by uh, by by loved ones or you know, you know people who were in their life who are now now dead though we don't actually see any brakir going through uh this ritual it is all our our main characters are the people that we we see going through this here but it's it's all of it's a really cool setup it's really great to bring some magical realism here to babylon 5 there are lots of questions that we are going to ask each other um i think one question we don't need to necessarily ask each other but i'm going to make the audience aware that you and i probably both thought it at some point which is well if it only happens once every like 200 years and the brakir know it's coming and it's super exciting for them why don't they just go home instead of like trying to literally at the last hour get <laughs> captain lockley to agree to 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 sell not rent but sell a portion of the Babylon Five to them, um, we don't really get that sense at all. Um, although uh, perhaps the fact that the Brakiri seem to have a lot of glee and delight in their interactions with Londo and with others, um, Mr. Garibaldi, that maybe similar to people who are really into Halloween, uh, it isn't really just about them. It's also wanting you know the kids to visit their house to see all of the, um, you know, wonderful things they've done to their lawn and front porch and whatnot. Um, and so this is the Rikiri or, you know, maybe they are also having their own visitors, but they are looking forward to sharing this experience. Yeah, I'll buy that as an answer. I mean, in the the Brakiri who are on the station are, I, I I think mostly the diplomatic mission, right? We should say Babylon Five is basically the United Nations uh, in space. It's the intergal intergalactic or intragalactic. It's the interstellar uh, UN in space, and so you know people here are doing important jobs when they're here. So they maybe can't get home, and so this is what they're going to do. But yeah, we don't we don't get a defense of that. We don't need a defense of that. But of course, yes, you're right. I definitely thought it. You definitely thought it because that's the type of nerds we are. But uh, uh, let's talk about Londo. Let's get his story here. So Londo is feeling down. He's feeling useless. He's feeling insignificant. And this is shown to us, I think, rather brilliantly through the act of him picking up a newspaper, like an honest physical newspaper, and seeing that the main article is about the arrival of some comedians on the station. We'll have more on that later. And that his accession to the throne of Centauri is only a small blurb in the corner. And we see this attitude here continue when he pours himself a drink and he's going to drink alone in his quarters. Though You did talk about his uh, relationship with alcohol earlier, Brent, though. We should be clear, Londo is what people would describe as a fun drunk, though there is also <laughs> quite a bit of sadness for him deep, deep down. But he, uh, he's, you know, he's fun at parties, I guess, is maybe a fair thing to say about Londo. But you know, all of this is part of a gag where the camera is focused only on Londo while he talks with the first emperor. And so we, the audience, are expecting the camera to pan out to reveal that, oh my gosh, the first emperor is actually here because it's the Day of the Dead, and the dead really are coming back, but he's not. It's just a picture. And it is a good gag. It did work on me. It worked on me the first time, and I had actually forgotten this episode well enough that it, it worked mostly on me this time, too. And, and Londo here, he's complaining that it doesn't really mean anything to be emperor anymore. It's just a title. Now it's largely an empty title. But... Somebody dead really is going to show up here for Londo, and that is Adira, who Brent's already introduced us to. And Brent, I think you said you wanted to say a little bit more about Adira before we talk about their encounter here. 
Yeah, so she is uh, kind of his, uh, you know, tragic love story from his past, and uh, she was he was hoping to to see her again. And as you said, Glenn, like uh, if he had actually thought, not you know, in terms of what he should think as the you know ascendant emperor of like, oh, I should talk to the old emperor, and you know, I have some things to say to him, um, but legitimately, kind of as a person who he actually would want to spend one more night with, and Adira does make logical sense. And so in some ways, he gets, um, you know, exactly what his wish would be if he had taken the time to make his wish, as opposed to, you know, what he was prepared to deal with, which I love how much some people are just totally on board and expectant with what's going to happen here. And I'm not convinced that Londo thinks anything will happen, but he's decided to throw himself into the spirit of the day, as you said, by putting the uh, painted uh, picture of the uh, First Emperor on kind of the couch opposite him and pours himself a drink. And he's got a second uh, goblet out. I mean, the answer that Londo gives, uh, the, I would lo- I would talk to the first emperor. I mean, that's the politician answer. That's the public answer that he gives outside in public. I mean, it's right outside the door to his quarters here at Babylon 5, but it's it's not, right? It's not the private answer he would give, but he's giving the public answer. Though the only person who's there is this Rikari dude, whether he's a, he's a merchant or a priest or whatever, despite the fact that he's about to become the emperor. Londo is not walking around with any kind of security. Anyone can walk up to him <laughs> outside of his quarters, it turns out, which you know, is maybe something that we would find a little bit unbelievable. Star Trek does this sort of thing too, of course, where you know we don't want, we're not going for realism here. We're just trying to have the character encounters that we're trying to have. But it does strike me, and you know, we, we won't spoil anything because we have not done this issue of Sandman yet. But this is an idea that Gaiman is actually quite interested in, right? The idea of powerful person just talking to random people on the street. We are going to get a story about an emperor doing exactly that in a Sandman issue, uh, you know, in the years to come. One of my favorite Sandman issues, in fact. Well, that's a good point, Glenn. I hadn't really thought about it as much in this case because um, I assumed that the Bakari was their ambassador. And so while we see oftentimes in Babylon 5 that people just wander around freely with the ambassadors and can walk right up to their doors and they don't have, no one has like a, you know, an outer door. There's no foyer areas for any of these apartments, literally the door slides to the side and you can see their entire, like, you know, quarters. But I always just kind of retconned in my head that there's an ambassador section in which, you know, only certain people are allowed to be through that point. And then, you know, maybe that's not always advisable, but at least you can be like, you know, knowing that just some random person from below decks is not necessarily going to stumble up to the, you know, emperor of the Centauri Republic's, um, Sweet and just be able to, you know, be one door hack away from uh, walking in and doing whatever they wanted to do. Um, so I kind of assume this is the ambassador. Right. That's a good point because this, we should make clear that this is happening in the VIP section, uh, the VIP quarter section of Babylon 5. So all the characters that are going to have this, this visitation are higher ups here. I mean, which is why also there are main cast characters. But yeah, this Precari is not the ambassador because we do meet that ambassador later and they're definitely not the same person though. Yeah, who knows? We have no idea what this person's position is. And yeah, as I, I said, I think everyone who's on the station, uh, you know, from the Precari are uh, wrapped up in that uh, that diplomatic mission in some way. So I don't think he's actually just a candy merchant. <laughs> you know, I think there's something else going on there. Yeah, he's got the right badge to be in this uh, in this hallway for sure. But, you know, what's really going on here, right? What matters for this story is that Londo, through 
spending time with Adira again, realizes why he's feeling so hollow. He realizes that nothing he's done, all of the horrible, awful choices that he's made working with Mr. Morden and the the shadows to try to restore the glory to the Centauri Empire and also for himself to become emperor. None of that, none of the awful things he's done has brought him any happiness. And certainly none of it has brought Adira back, though he has killed out of vengeance, you know, for her murder. And Lando here says that he would give up being emperor. He would give up everything in order to have Adira back, that he has learned what it is that he actually wants in life. And it turns out it's not any of the things that he basically sold his soul to get. He got exactly what he asked for. And um, it's been nothing but punishment um, since then. So, I mean, he very much is kind of a tragic Greek figure, right? He, he's, he says, I want X. He literally received X, um, but there were a bunch of strings attached. And um, at the end of the day, even if the strings weren't attached, I don't know that, you know, he really wants to be emperor, even if he didn't have all these other kind of ties, because there was a simplicity to him being the uh, happy drunk, uh, the outpost, you know, far away from the action who got to tell loud tales to Mr. Garibaldi. And, you know, then at the one point was lucky enough to, to meet this woman that he loved. And so if he could just be with her and be back to the kind of the simple times um, of not having responsibility and not having knowledge of all of the things that he directly and indirectly has uh, done that has led to a lot of suffering of a lot of sentient creatures in the galaxy. Yeah, I think one way to characterize Londo is, you know, is, is ambition, right? That's his driving force when we meet him. But it's an ambition that is born out of ego and, and maybe born out of low self-esteem in particular. And so he makes all these awful choices instead of settling for what he has. And what he has is pretty good. He's still an aristocrat. He's still a member of an elite family uh, with wealth and means. He's he's posted here at Babylon 5, which, you know, I mean, I'd like to go live on Babylon 5 for a while. It seems like it's pretty fun. seems like it's pretty cool. And he is having a pretty good life there from, you know, viewed externally, but he's unable to have happiness there. And he thinks that what he wants, right, is to become more important. Because of course, this is what aristocrats are for, right, is to be important in society to be important in managing the affairs of state. He has basically been banished from the court uh, and sent to be the UN ambassador, which is basically like the worst thing you can get, the worst post you can get in the empire, worst high-level post you can get in managing the affairs of the empire is UN ambassador, right? Uh, there are many other ambassadorships that would have been better. You know, I don't know, minister of state, what, you know, any of these things would have been better. He didn't get that. He's basically been banished and, you know, has this kind of indefinite term that he's going to be on Babylon 5 for and can't find a way to just, you know, I don't know, find a D&D group and, you know, make some friends and be happy. He has this ambition, but it doesn't actually serve him because it turns out he doesn't really want any of that. And it's too late that he discovers that what he, what he was missing was Adira. And he had it briefly and is never going to be able to find it find it again. It's a really heartbreaking story. Lando is probably my favorite character in Babylon 5. And he's one of my favorite characters in, in you know TV literature of, of all time, for sure. And I love this episode for him. I love the Lando story here, getting one last chance at this and to see his sadness before we get you know the rest of his arc here, which, which, which we won't spoil here just in case we've got people whose first encounter with Babylon 5 this is and might be inspired to go check it out. Yeah, and he's one of my favorite characters uh, in Babylon 5 and one of my favorite characters kind of in television. Um, 
sometimes I can't decide if I like Jakar better, but they are very much intertwined throughout the whole series. And so um, I think to have one of them be your favorite means that the other one is definitely close on the heels, if not equally so. <laughs> I do want to talk a little bit about, um, and I, I'm guessing this is intentional because Neil Gaiman is a great writer. Uh, it may not be, but um, I do want to look a little bit about kind of some of the identify if there is a specific kind of totem or collection of totems um, that each of our characters either are interacting with or evoking with their words prior to, you know, their guests arriving. So with Londo, as we talked about, you know, in the hallway, he made the comment. And as you, as you rightly pointed out in public, he gives the very public response of, I want to talk to the first emperor. I've got some things I want to tell him. But in private, while he does lay out the picture across the way on the couch, the actual camera focus, and part of it is kind of the head fake of, is he talking? Who is he talking to? Is he talking to anyone? But aside from that, the camera is also focused on him pouring this glass of some kind of, we assume either wine or liquor of some kind. And I think there might be something to that in terms of Londo. Um, it's not that he is staring at some kind of, uh, you know, piece of jewelry or, you know, some other kind of um, kind of more official looking thing, you know, that he's not balancing a, a crown on, you know, one hand and saying like, woe is me and my kingdom. Instead, it's just kind of on the one hand, kind of simple pleasures. But on the other hand, there's a lot of richness um, for those of us who are fans of uh, alcoholic beverages, um, if they are well-made, then there's a lot of story and uh, a lot of complexity going into those things. But also when you drink, sometimes you drink and you think about work, but I think you tend to think about other things that are more personal sometimes. And so I think that maybe that is a key relation to who his visitor ends up being. Yeah, and he he has two glasses out or goblets. I think these really are. And yeah, they're gold wine goblets, and the booze is in a nice bottle. It looks like it's you know it's fancy. He's about to be the emperor, so it's it's fancy. But he's got two set out there, and one wonders if that's something he always does, right? Does he always leave one out? You know, for maybe he'll get a visitor, but or is this something he does in memory of Adira? You know, always it's possible we've we've almost likely actually that uh, prior to this episode, which is the only one that I watched in preparation for this uh, uh, for doing this show today, that that's something that we've seen him do before, and you know maybe there is uh, something to that. But yeah, it's a nice it's a nice touch. I love the visual of that. This is a quite quite a well directed episode. Well, let's let's talk about our next character, and I'm going to defy your uh, your rationale here, Brandon. Say that Jakar is not my second favorite character after Londo. Uh, it is actually Michael. Gar Garibaldi, and that's who I want to talk about next. Garibaldi is the station security chief. He's a human, we should be clear. Uh, I think he's actually from LA. At any rate, he's a Dodgers fan. Garibaldi is kind of a, a blue collar person. I mean, he, he's a cop. He's basically John McClane. He even has like the, the, the Bruce Willis in Die Hard haircut. And uh, that's who he's really trying to be here. And actually, I guess that's all takes place in LA, even though McClane's from New York. And that is exactly what Garibaldi feels like as a character. But his encounter here tonight is also going to be with a former lover. In this case, it is a woman named Dodger, which, you know, that's fun. He's a Dodgers fan and he's visited by a woman named Dodger. But Dodger is also someone that we have seen on screen before. So Brent, I'm going to let you fill us in on who she is. What, what do we need to know about her here for this to work with us? Yeah. So Dodger um, was uh, 
infantry with uh, Earth's military. They're called various things. They're referred to as the infantry. They're referred to as uh, the episode is called Gropos for ground pounders, I believe. But they also referred to as Marines. And so I think that there's a lot of things going on where they basically they are the infantry for Earth government in the future. Um, and so it's some combination of kind of what we in the U.S. would associate with the Army mixed with the Marine Corps. Uh, but she had shown up along with a lot of other folks uh, when Babylon 5 was briefly a uh, staging area before going off to uh, a distant battle. And she very quickly in that episode uh, managed to uh, meet Mr. Garibaldi, chance meeting in the hallway, and decided that she would enjoy spending some time with him. Um, and so they go out to dinner and end up back in his quarters. And then he <laughs> uh, slows things down because he's not sure whether they have a relationship and like where they want to go. And he was just got out of something and just like lays out this whole like, ah, I just need to talk about me and relationships and feelings and she's like no look i don't have a lot that's going on in my life um and when i'm on shore leave or you know at temporarily somewhere and i don't know whether i'm gonna die tomorrow i just want to have a good time she literally just wants to have sex with him because she enjoys his company and is attracted to him and he's attracted to her and she doesn't want to overthink all of these things and so um they get into an argument um and then by the end of the episode, they, you know, reconcile and he hopes to see her again. But um, she actually ends up being killed um, uh, at her next deployment that she is, you know, sent off to right away, um, along with the other characters we meet in that episode. It's quite a good episode. It's in uh, season two. And in the meantime, Garibaldi's story has been quite wrapped up actually in his love life. And so what we get here is really part two of that story. They spend the night together and Dodger says that she is here for a night of lust and passion. And she's really rather pleading with him to have sex with her just like she did <laughs> the first time they met, right? And in this case, Garibaldi does share some physical intimacy with her. They're sort of lounging together on the bed. He kisses her at one point, but he is also talking about uh, another woman that he's been involved with, a woman named Lise. We've, we have seen a lot of her uh, in an earlier seasons of Babylon 5, and he might still be involved with her. I think that's not something at this point we actually are clear on. I believe he mentions her, but it seems to be he seems to have accepted that Dodger, he knows Dodger is dead and he seems to have really quickly accepted the fact this dead person is back and um, wanting to um, have him help warm her bed and vice versa. But also that like it won't count. He, he says something and isn't quite along the lines of different area codes don't count, but it kind of feels like that. Right, but my, my sense here is that they, they don't have sex. They certainly don't on screen, but my sense is they don't between the scenes either. Or do you disagree? Do you think that they do? Oh, I think they do. Okay. Because I he's uh, I feel like there's a costume change that he has at some point. Uh, I think she is trying to get more attention from him, but uh, they certainly are making out. Um, but I, I get the sense that they also have sex. Okay, I think that makes more sense, right? Given wh why would you have just a redo of her one and only appearance on the show if you're not going to complete that arc? And and to complete that arc, you know, for Garibaldi, right? This is Garibaldi's story. Garibaldi's the character that we're here for. So it doesn't actually, I think, make a whole lot of sense otherwise if he doesn't actually get the do-over with Dodger and get to really have the night they were supposed to have the first time, which is good for him and it's good for her 
too, though unclear what she actually is, you know, what is actually the phenomenon that's going on here. And that is something that they, that they talk about. And, and, you know, you said that he pretty quickly accepts that she's here, but I actually think that Garibaldi of the characters that, you know, the four characters that we follow here, Garibaldi's the one who's the most suspicious and, and doesn't believe that the person visiting him is real, at least for a little bit. But we do get through that quickly because, hey, we've only got 42 minutes to tell this story. But Londo accepts it very easily. Uh, Lockley and Lanier accept it very easily as well. I think Garibaldi's the only one who really is actively suspicious, who levels a gun at her, who interrogates her a little bit and, and so on. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's fair. I, I think he is not as suspicious as I would be, but he is probably le- more suspicious than the other char- characters. Um, and Mr. Garibaldi generally is the suspicious one, like uh, most security chiefs in shows or detectives. You know, right. he's the one who's, you know, just not sure and has a hunch. Also, we're not going to go into it, but there's a whole, there's a community of telepaths um, on the station who have been um, causing issues this particular season. Um, and Mr. Garibaldi, has a history of telepaths kind of messing with his mind. Um, and so that is one of the things he uh, jumps to as a possible conclusion that maybe this is a trick from um, uh, some of the telepaths either on the station or from Psychor uh, from Earth that are trying to mess with him um, again. Yeah, I struggled a little bit as to like what was the totem of the Garibaldi because he was asleep when she appeared. So like the totem is his bed, but also specifically, you know, the conversation he has with the uh, Prakiri in the hall is Mercury's explained like this is the line and he's like so the the other side of the line is Burkir but that's where my bed is and the shower is that's where I'm going and then the next time we see him he wakes up and and Dodger's there in the Gropos episode uh, there's a bit in which um, she is trying to convince him that he just needs uh, and he actually at at that point in the episode is on board with the fact that he needs uh it's time for r and r uh rest and relaxation so in, in some ways the bed might be the totem but also just the idea of rest and relaxation is maybe the totem for him and dodger for him in some ways if he lets it go and doesn't fixate on women who are in his rear view as was the case when dodger when he first met dodger even if it's not as much the case in this episode but just kind of gets rest and relaxation and has a break from being the you know somewhat uh, paranoid is be the negative way of referring to it. Suspicious security officer would be the professional way of referring to it, right? Kind of view of things. Then that's what's going on. Um, is that you know the act of him like him off duty in the purest sense is him without his communicator on his wrist, actually like in bed asleep, so he's not thinking about all of the you know crap he has to do at work. And Garibaldi's arc is that that Garibaldi is someone who who carries a troubled past with him, or maybe not a troubled past, but an emotionally complex past with him. He struggles with alcoholism. Uh, substance abuse is something that he's done to cope with that emotional past. Uh, and if it's not that, then it's workaholism, right? He's someone who, who throws himself at distractions. And so to see him actually embracing R&R as a you know part of a healthy lifestyle is a pretty big deal. And I think that's something that Dodger symbolizes for him here and is perhaps why you know, of all the people that Garibaldi has known and who have died in his life, Dodger's the one who uh, who comes to visit him. 
And in fact, this can lead us right into the next character we should talk about, which is Captain Lockley. Uh, again, a, a human. She is the uh, captain who runs the space station now that the captain who has been running the space station is the uh, the president of um, what is not the United Federation of Planets, but is the Babylon 5 uh, equivalent of it. Uh, this is Captain Lockley. Lockley is a new character this season, so there's maybe not a lot to fill in here, given that this is the you know only the eighth episode that we have had with her. And the person who visits her is new to us as well. Uh, and Lockley actually used to be married to Sheridan, who used to be the captain running the station and is now in charge of the International Alliance that is headquartered here at Babylon 5. That's not something that's really going to matter, but that that is what her backstory is, at least until we get this episode where we are going to get some more. But the person who visits Lockley is Zoe, and this is someone that Lockley knew as a, a teenager, uh, someone who died as a teenager, in fact, uh, died of a drug overdose. And in this to me, in terms of characters anyway, this is probably the most Gaiman-esque bit of story. Uh, you know, the whole thing is magical realism, of course, and that is very Gaiman-esque. But I think that this depiction of a, a drug user, uh, drug addict maybe, as a person and as a person who matters, this is a big part of Gaiman's MO in the 90s. And we learned here that Lockley was pretty big into drugs as a teenager too. She and Zoe had run away from home. They're living together in a burned out hotel. And you know, I guess just doing a lot of drugs together, you know, we don't really know what type of drugs these were, but Lockley does describe this as pretty bad, that they were just high a lot. They were also cold and sick and hungry, and they had to do some things to survive. These are things that she says she would rather just forget. But eventually Zoe died of an overdose and Lockley's father is a military man of, of some sort, low-ranking military man of some sort. I get the impression that he's a lieutenant in charge of a Marine platoon, uh, came to get her. Lockley herself, of course, is now wound up in the military and has been clean ever since. The dramatic arc of the visit from Zoe is that Lockley has always wondered if Zoe's overdose was accidental or if it was intentional, right? If Zoe had killed herself. And she does learn now that it was a suicide. And there's nothing inherently bad about the story. It is pretty Gaiman-esque, right? And in general, I mean, I think this was a big part of the 90s, this move to seeing substance abuse as a clinical problem to address, to help people with, uh, rather than simply something to dismiss as a kind of character flaw. And this is, I think, a pretty positive move that we made culturally in the 1990s. But it's actually been done on Babylon 5 before. I mean, this show was a big part of that move. We had that with Garibaldi. We just talked about that a little bit, but also with Dr. Franklin, who's addicted to uh, a, a stimulant uh, for a big part of, of season three. And in fact, Garibaldi is someone who helps him get through that because he has some experience with this. That's a great uh, plot arc uh, between those two characters that I really love. Uh, but even though I, I love that character story and I love this move generally, I think we are better as a people for having had this cultural moment. I have to say, Brian, I do not buy this backstory for Lockley and maybe in part because I've been in the military that I, I know that, right, this sort of thing is just in your background and it is going to haunt your ability to get high level security clearances forever. And you would need that type of clearance in order to be running this station. But I also don't buy it because we don't ever see anything about this again. There's just no sense that Lockley is struggling with substance abuse now or in any episodes to come that she's, I don't know, going to you know, something akin to Narcotics Anonymous meetings or, or something like that. So it just made made it hard for me to buy into this story. But, but I wonder how it worked for you, Brent. 
Yeah, I have a problem. Um, I think a lot of people do um, with Lockley in the fifth season. It's it's challenging to bring a new character in, and I think that there she, she oftentimes just preserve uh, kind of uh, is there to preserve kind of plot functions where like we need someone to be in her role, and because Captain Sheridan is now President Sheridan is in a different role, you can't have him be the person initially in the season. She's just kind of the outsider, and maybe she's not you know one of us kind of thing, even though. That almost gets undercut right away when you find out that, you know, she, her ex-husband is Sheridan. So it's just like, it almost would have worked better if she was completely a stranger to everyone as opposed to having it. So I feel like that there's a lot that they're trying to do with Lockley's character, and I'm not sure it ever quite works. And this particular plot line, yeah, I don't think it really works, but I think it's not as much a problem with... It's not a problem with this this particular script so much as I think it's a problem with no one knows what to do with Lockley. And I think that when Neil Gaiman went to write the script, either Lockley was either this was presented to him or he, you know, if he came up with the idea, she is the one with the blank slate that he could graph this onto that he couldn't with someone else without giving us a brand new character. Yeah, I think that's definitely how this works. So I, I know uh, some of the things that I was uh, reading about this uh, about this episode, which is really actually just what I was going to look things up, like what was the air date and and so on, so we could uh, and who directed it, so we could say those things at the top of the show. Uh, that Gaiman was given free reign to pick the characters that he wanted to work with on this script, and so yeah, he picked Lockley, and it has to be because she was this blank slate. He wanted to tell this story, wanted to tell a story about someone with substance abuse, this type of story that he tells. Uh, you know, fairly often and, and always with a lot of pathos and they tend to be good stories. I would like this story, you know, in some other setting with some other character. I just don't think it works here. I don't think it's appropriate for here. And, you know, for the reasons that I already stated, but yeah, they, we, we know that he had free reign to pick the characters he wanted, which is going to going to lead into a question I have for you about the the last character as well. He does. Uh, I mean, I really like there's some really great Neil Gaimanisms in this part of the script. One of my favorite lines is where Zoe says that she doesn't believe in ghosts, um, which is just a great thing to have someone who is a ghost essentially deliver. It's it's funny, but also kind of endearing. And I think it works to kind of make you to have better kind of empathy for the kind of tragedy that is this Zoe backstory, um, even if it doesn't quite feel like it really fits with Lockley. But uh, her Zoe talking about not believing ghosts, and then Zoe also when talking about um, that when she died, that it was bad, is all she says. But she's got this look on her face. And at that point, um, I don't know if this happened with you, Glenn, I immediately was imagining if like she ended up in the grove of suicides that we saw, you know, Sandman wander through where there was that branch of the tree that depending on uh, how the art looks, it almost looks like Morpheus is a jerk and snaps a limb off of, or it could just be a limb <laughs> snaps off of. But either way, like if that's where she effect effectively wound up and like, or just imagining someone else who has put themselves through hell because of their drug abuse in life. And then in ending their life, maybe their hell is still continuing in literal hell um, as we've seen in the Sandman comics. We don't get any sense of where 
the four people that we meet, the four dead people that we meet in this episode are when they're they're dead. And some of them don't know, some of them don't seem to, to care. I mean, it, you know, this doesn't really come up with Londo and Adira, with Garibaldi and Dodger. You know, they have a pretty big metaphysical question about sort of what is Dodger and Dodger's response as well as, uh, you know, what difference does it make? I'm here. Let's make use of this time because we, and by we, I mean you, Garibaldi, messed it up last time. So let's, let's correct that now. But all of the characters, you know, have some question about this. But, but with Lockley and with uh, Lanier, we'll get to Lanier in a moment, the, the, the dead people who visit them do also have some knowledge that they're actually bringing to uh, the, the people they're visiting. Garibaldi actually asks Dodger if she has anything for him, and she says, no, I don't have anything <laughs> for, for you. But right, but Zoe does for Lockley. It, it doesn't really matter for this episode. It's setting something up for you know the future, and it's really actually for Sheridan. Uh, and then we get something akin to that with Lanier, who's the, the last character that we, we get. While Dodger does say she doesn't have anything new that she didn't already have when she was alive, she does impart a very key piece of information to uh, both Garibaldi and the audience, which is that you can sing any Emily Emily Dickinson poem to the tune of The Yellow Rose of Texas, which is an important thing really to know, I think. (laughs) <laughs> it's actually the thing that I remember from this episode without remembering it's from this episode. That is one of the, I don't know, five, to maybe 10 things that really are going to stick with me my entire life from the first viewing of Babylon 5 that I did. Yeah, it's a, And we get two examples of it, though. One of them is not actually an Emily Dickinson poem, uh, sadly, but they do both uh, They do both work to you know, Yellow Rose of, of Texas. So that's uh, that's great. Uh, it's, a, it's a good trick at parties for sure. So finally, we have Lanier. He's the fourth character who is visited by a dead person. Lanier is uh, Minbari. These are the space elves. He used to be the aide to Delenn, who is also a Minbari. She's super important to this show. She's really one of the principal heroes. And when the show began, right, this was a show about diplomats at the Space UN. I mean, basically, it was, you know, the great game. And uh, Delenn was the ambassador from the Minbari. Lanier was her aide. That's really probably all we need to say uh, about that, uh, at least... At, at this point, well, I guess maybe we should say that Delan also is married to Captain Sheridan. We are going to see her. We'll talk about her. She's wrapped up in the B plot. But uh, Lanier has left his job as her aide, and now he's in. Well, I guess we could call it special ops training, but it's it's ranger training, right? He's uh, hanging out with Aragorn, space Aragorn, basically. Uh, but he has come back to the station because he is a priest, first and foremost. That's his training. And he's interested in participating in the Day of the Dead. And it's Lanier who's going to be visited by Mr. Morden, which, you know, as you talked about earlier, Brent, Morden is a pretty big deal. He's basically the mouth of Sauron in this story. And so it's pretty emotional, pretty exciting when we see him appear on screen. And in fact, we hear his voice before we see him. And we should say that he has a a distinct voice, so we all immediately recognize it. And in fact, in the shot, his face is hidden from us, uh, again, with an actual honest-to-goodness physical newspaper, which is a pretty great uh, pretty great move. And their interaction is really interesting. And Lanier, you know, he's praying when this happens. He's, you know, doing priest stuff. He's interested in this ritual. He wants to be visited by a dead person. He has come here for that to happen. And what he says he wants is wisdom, but Morden is not here for that. He mostly seems to be here to taunt Lanier. He says, you know, Delenn doesn't love you, not the way you love her, and that's never going to happen. 
Uh, he also tells him that he's going to betray the Rangers. There are a few other taunting things like this. But Lanier and Morden never actually knew each other while Morden was alive. And so this also struck me as a strange choice. It it, it seemed to me anyway, you might disagree, Brent, but it seemed to me that Gaiman was, well, what he did here was pick Morden. He wanted to write lines for Morden. And he had to pick a character from Morden to visit. And so he settled on Lanier for some reason. That's my sense of it. And so, I don't know, if that's the case, why do you think he chose Lanier for this? Yeah, and I wasn't quite sure why he chose him, because I think more obviously you'd have him interact with, with Veer, who he did have frequent interactions with, who was the aide for Londo. But there was such a good kind of last scene between Veer and Mr. Morden, um, I think it was the last scene or second to last scene, where Veer says, like, one day I'm going to see your head on a pike and I'm going to wave at it just like this. And then later he sees Mr. Morden's head on a pike and waves at it just like that. So maybe you don't want to untie that beautiful bow. But it just it it's it's strange to have it be Lanier versus I guess you know Jakar would maybe fly into a rage. I mean maybe it's Lanier because if you want to write for Mister Morden, literally everyone else in the station will want to kill him. And while Lanier wants to kill him, he also is trying to do a balancing act between kind of controlling his emotions to focus, you know, his anger in a productive way while still trying to, you know, be devout in a kind of it's he's a weird mixture of like there's a lot of anger issues in Lanier, but it's kind of always shrouded by him having this outward no no, I should be a devout pacifist kind of thing going on. Particularly because more than the Minbari wanting more, more than the space elves wanting that, like that's what Delenn wants. Which you know, when he was her aide, he very much wanted to make her happy, and then he thinks that he loves her. Maybe he does love her, and so even more so, he wants to like be the steadfast, more pacifist role. Is is kind of what I'm thinking? Is just that like you need to have someone who wants to lash out at him, but also where there's conflict in the idea of lashing out. But uh, what are your thoughts on it? Well, you're absolutely right to say that there aren't a whole lot of options. I think Veer would have been the obvious option, though you're right. I think not wanting to untie that bow, and that is a good idea. I still just think the actor wasn't available, right? Veer's not really a part of the fifth season. At least that's my recollection of it. But then the other two options, I think, here would be Londo. But we've already got Adira visiting Londo, and I think that is a better story. I think telling a story about... Londo coming to recognize that he shouldn't have made all these dealings with Morden by having him be visited by the thing that it turns out he has now learned he really wanted in all the world is the better move for Londo. The other person would be Sheridan. And I might actually have wanted to see that. Uh, that's something I might actually have liked, though. Also, you know, you're right that he probably would not have reacted very calmly or, or positively. He might not have, you know, in keeping in Sheridan's character, he might not have just sat there and talked to Morden the way that Lanier does more or less. So yeah, not a lot of, not a lot of options if you want to use Morden, I guess. I think I would have made it Morden be Ivanova, but I don't know what you would have had that interaction be, and I don't know what message you'd have delivered to her. But with Lanier, the totem he has, which is very much drawn to my attention, which is the reason why I then was paying attention in some of the other scenes, was he – so he shows up and is excited to be on the station specifically because he had studied the, the Brakir and their – Day of the Dead rituals and wanted to kind of witness it himself. But he seems fully prepared for that. But he, he, when it arrives, he is meditating. Um, he is on a prayer rug, but at the top of the prayer rug is his collapsible 
quarterstaff. And so it's interesting to me that he is meditating around something that is a symbol of violence. It's also though, specifically the ranger staff is supposed to be something to help. Like it, it doesn't have a blade to inflict damage. If I remember correctly, it's most more supposed to be like, no, a defensive kind of weapon, I think is the symbolism at least, but still it's a weapon. And that's interesting to me that he is focusing his meditation on a weapon and it's a weapon that, and this is probably not intentional, but it could be um, that when we see it, it's because it's a collapsible thing. It's just a little like, you know, cylinder that's about the size of your fist. So that's what he is focusing on, which is probably easy for prop purposes to just have that little piece to interact with. But it also, I think, works well from the writing perspective for Neil Gaiman to have the focus be on something that has so much kind of built up inherent um, it's almost, you know, it's technically not kinetic energy, but it kind of is, right? Because there's the idea that there is something that literally explodes off both <laughs> sides of it if you press a button. Um, so maybe it is literally kinetic energy, but or potential energy rather. So to have like something that is potential energy as a weapon, and that is where his focus is as he's preparing for whoever is going to meet him. So who he is met with is the voice of the person who is nothing if not a collection of weaponry when he was alive in some ways. Yeah, that's an awesome observation. And I think that actually does make some sense. You know, something that we should say about the Rangers is that the Rangers are this special unit of space warriors that's made up of both Minbari and humans and is kind of the special unit in command uh, that, that that Sheridan and Delenn are in command of. Uh, they're, they're like, you know, the special forces that our main characters have access to. And their job is really to fight evil is to fight the the shadows. They are rangers as paladins, I guess. And so, yeah, for someone in training to be doing that work, to actually be visited by the ghost of the mouth of Sauron or the, you know, the ghost of the agent of the, the shadows, I guess that does actually make some, some sense. I had not been thinking about it in those terms, but I think, yeah, focusing on the totem like that and thinking about what Lanier is up to in his life at this moment. And, you know, especially if we're thinking about how this works is that the people who appear, the dead people who appear to our characters here are people that are on the mind of, or, you know, maybe deep in the subconscious of, but like actively working in their, their minds in some way of our characters, then yeah, the fact that he's concentrating on this weapon and then the person who is really maybe kind of a totem for or emblematic of the enemy he's training to fight uh, does make some some sense. Yeah, I think that's a great observation. It's interesting for someone who wanted to experience the Day of the Dead and then you have someone visit you, particularly if it's the mouthpiece of the great adversary. Lanier's refusal to engage him. And partially it's because he doesn't like what little Morden has said to him, but it's such a wonderful opportunity to pick the brain of something that it's too bad Lanier did not make more of the situation. But also Mr. Morden has one of my favorite lines, which I may just start exiting emails with, which is uh, uh, one of the last things he says is when you remember me, Lanier, think of me as a brief electromagnetic anomaly who told you some true things for your own good. Maybe another interesting thing to think about here in terms of Lanier and why Morden is the person who visits Lanier is that if you asked Lanier, if you could spend the night in conversation with any person, who would you pick? 
the person he would pick is not a dead person. It's Delenn. And that's a big part of why he's come here instead of going to Brakir. I mean, he says that it's because it would take too long to get there, but I don't buy it. That's a flimsy excuse. He is here because he is in love with Delenn, which is, you know, one of the first things that Morden says to him is to call him on that and let him know that that's just never going to happen. It's not going to work out. So maybe there just isn't anyone else for, you know, maybe there isn't anyone else to come to Lanier. And Lanier maybe has some darkness in his heart. We do get this in, you know, you talked about his anger, but we do get this in his interaction with Delenn uh, at the, the top of the show when he refuses to refer to Sheridan as Delenn's husband or to name him. He is full of envy, but it's a, it's an angry envy uh, at, at, at Sheridan's role in Delenn's life. And, you know, if he's got that anger with him, maybe this is the result, right? Maybe the, the, the choice of who you're visited by is not maybe about who you're thinking about or necessarily the person who matters the most to you in your life, but maybe is, is coming out of your the, the, the emotions that you're carrying with you right now, the principal emotion. That might make some sense with what we see Londo being wistful and full of, you know, and, and regretful as well. Uh, Garibaldi also, and, you know, he's primed to be thinking about Dodger, or, you know, to be, you know, feeling the same thing he felt when Dodger was around anyway. And so, yeah, I think that might be what's, what's happening here. So yeah, I think you have talked me into <laughs> thinking this was actually a pretty good idea. I was skeptical. So <laughs> that's great. I, I'm, yeah, I'm grateful for this conversation, but uh, we should uh, we should get to the B plot here. We've got a little bit of, of episode left to talk about, and we've been at this for a while already. So uh, the B plot, first thing we should say about this is that uh, it's about the guest stars and the guest stars are Penn and Teller, the uh, duo of uh, magician slash comedians who um, are still on TV, still going strong with their careers, but I think we're at the height of their careers in the the 90s here where they were uh, had their own TV shows where uh, I think really now they're doing a longstanding gig in Vegas and maybe have a TV show, but they were doing a lot of TV shows in the 90s and were guesting on TV shows and had this part, this comedy duo who have been mentioned in previous episodes, but had this uh, their their appearance here in this episode written for them, right? It was uh, we knew it was going to be Penn and Teller uh, when they were were written, and uh, their deal here is that you know Penn is the the gregarious talker, uh, he's the joker of the the pair, and Teller does not speak except that he has this little. Pez dispenser looking machine, a space Pez dispenser uh, that he can make speak in a weird mechanical voice that is is actually voiced by great science fiction writer Harlan Ellison, and uh, that's uh, that's their deal. And notably, uh, so Penn and Teller, those of you who are not as familiar um, as Glenn said, Penn is kind of the gregarious um, one of the two um, and kind of the the mouth of things, uh, even more so because Teller, in opposition to his name, hence the joke there, uh, does not speak. When he is on stage um, and in character, uh, Teller does not do any of the talking in their comedy duo. And so the robot voice that Harlan Ellison does for the device that Teller's character has in this uh, speaks instead of him. Apparently in the script, um, there was a suggestion that Teller should actually have lines, but um, those lines obviously were either moved to Penn's character or other people kind of translated it. 
Yeah, and there are there are some pretty good gags with with Rebo and Zudi here, though they do also feel as comedy so frequently does. Uh, even you know has has a bit of an expiration date or a use by date anyway. Uh, but I did enjoy their their presence here. Uh, but gags aside, they're here to interact with Sheridan and Delenn, and principally this is going to happen at a, a dinner in their quarters. And what we see while this is going on is that Sheridan is dealing with the a plot. Right, we have really kind of neglected to talk about this element. Of of the, the being visited by dead people plot. But hey, the, the station or the, the part of the station that is technically now part of the Procure homeworld actually disappears. <laughs> That's part of the magical realism here. It's No one can communicate with it. Uh, it just seems to actually be missing off of all this, the station sensors and so on. And Sheridan ends up dealing with this. He actually goes down physically to the area, uh, which I guess is actually not where their quarters are, which is maybe a bit strange. Seems like they should be there, but they're on some other level. But he goes down to the level that they're at and investigates uh, a, a little bit. And so he's kind of in and out. He's on the phone. He's checking things out. So they don't really get to have this fun dinner with you know the superstar comedians who have come to visit the station because you know, Sheridan's being called in to work. And again, that that's meant to be kind of funny and is kind of a gag. But I wonder how this worked for you, Brent, the idea of, of Sheridan dealing with the A-plot here. I think it worked okay because it makes sense that he would be interested in what's going on and be confused. And partially, it's also, I think, related to other kind of character bits for him in the season where letting go of being the commander, uh, the captain of the station. So he shouldn't necessarily be doing some of these kind of really in the weeds, like what is going on bits of things. On the other hand, the commander of the station, Captain Lockley is not reachable. Uh, the security chief and also uh, Sheridan's best friend is not reachable. And this is only a couple of quarters from him. Um, although I think some of it is also, it was funny to see as he walks up to the field itself, he pulls what looks like a, some kind of a fire extinguisher yeah. pod or grenade <laughs> from the wall and throws it at it. And it, it gets, it bounces off right back at him. And the, the funny things about this is one, Really, that he's just going to there's no one else to walk up and try to, like, poke or prod this thing like he's the first to try this. Like what happened to the rest of station security? Probably, you know, due to availability, I guess, Zach, who plays one of the um, the security people just wasn't available that day for the shooting to be the one who goes up and does it. But it's also funny that, like, you're pulling a fire extinguisher from the space station wall and no klaxon goes off like <laughs> if there's a fire in a space station it feels like you know there should be some noise or acknowledgement but instead it's it, it there's none at all and so it it, it kind of works for me but where a lot of babylon 5 falls down and i think it's just a budgetary thing um is just that there aren't sufficient extras for me to believe that there are that the station is this big and there are that many people. Um, it's something that really works well for shows like, you know, from the 90s Red Dwarf, where like, no, it's a giant space station, but there's literally only four entities alive, right? So you can have those four entities do everything. But if we're supposed to believe that, like, there's a big group and that theoretically there maybe would be another ranger or two on the station, there certainly would be station security. There should be more. We only see one person in CNC. Like... There should be a lot of people around and that he shouldn't be physically the ones who is going and testing the barrier, right? Um, although it makes sense, given Sheridan's character, that he'd want to do that. But it I don't, it just 
it, it makes it feel more low budget when you show that to me versus like if you had just had someone tell him, no, we tried to do that and we weren't able to get through. Yeah, I think this is supposed to be part of Sheridan's arc this season, right, is that he is struggling to not be in charge of the station. It's been the job he's held for a few years and he's uncomfortable actually with his new role as the head of the interstellar alliance. Uh, he doesn't really know how to do that. He's uncomfortable with the idea of it. You know, he's a military man, uh, not a politician, but suddenly now he's a politician. Suddenly he's now a kind of head of state and he's much more comfortable being the captain of this station. He's much more comfortable making sure the plumbing and the elect- electricity, uh, you know, and the garbage is getting collected and all that stuff, you know, being the mayor of this space town, basically. And so he jumps at the opportunity to do that, which is an impulse I think a lot of us have when we're in an uncomfortable spot. I don't know how to do this job I'm supposed to be doing right now. Ah, but there's a, I, I can go do a task that I do know how to do. I'm going to do that and do it well so that I can feel some self-confidence again, except of course, in this case, it doesn't really work out for him because the, yeah, the fire extinguisher bounces back. So I get that. But I think what I didn't really like about this is that I kind of just wanted them to have dinner with Penn and Teller and to get some more lines, to have some more dialogue there. But the other thing too, is that the way that this is done and not just with Sheridan, but the, the melodrama of oh, suddenly part of the station is missing. The way that, the way that all of that is done is as if there's danger, as if there is, you know, something bad happening here. We get this with some urgency. Lockley and Garibaldi are in communication with each other. Lockley's making Garibaldi, uh, you know, build a, a kind of ad hoc radio system to get around the, the, the comms blocks. I don't know. He's building a, you know, hacking into the space internet basically. And that's a fun gag, but I never felt there was any real urgency to that. And the way this is done with Sheridan too, is that he's got to get down there and see what's going on. And the musical cue when he's down there is ominous. It's something bad is happening. And Maybe it's just that I've seen this episode so many times already, but maybe it's not. I, I just didn't buy that there was that urgency, that sense of dread. And so I, I, it didn't feel tonally right to me. Yeah, uh, there's a whole problem with the episode where I, there just doesn't feel like there is the dread at all. And I mean, I think the best effort other than the music cues kind of the better character reaction we see is at the top of the episode where Jakar barges into Lockley station right before she's going to sign the deal to turn over part of the station for the night. Um, and he's like, this is a bad idea. You shouldn't do that. And so then that to me says, okay, there's a concern. And then there's Jakar is actually, you know, at the command and control at CNC um, sleeping there for the night. Cause he doesn't want to be in his own quarters. Cause he's worried that, that, He'll be on, you know, the Bakir side of things. Um, but that's almost more played for jokes when Sheridan shows up at the CNC, I feel, than for like kind of ominousness of like there's something going on, partially because we have Jakar in a nightgown instead of like in his, <laughs> you know, action clothes. I, I, I agree with you. It would have been better, I think, to have Sheridan stay in the quarters and then instead it would have been because part of my problem with Sheridan this season, as you said, they're trying to show the difficulty where he would rather be running the station than, um, you know, president of, of the, the new intergalactic group, um, or intergalactic group. But I feel like Sheridan's struggle for the seasons prior to that was always that he wants to be out on the front lines rather than wanting to be, um, you know, cooped up at a desk at a stationary 
space station orchestrating things. And so that's the reason why eventually like we got to give him his own ship. It's very much kind of echoes of, um, you know, Kirk in Star Trek where like he's not happy behind a desk. So as soon as he gets demoted, that's the best thing you could do for him. And it's just like, how many times does he have to go through this? And is he really happier running the station versus just being behind a ship? Right. But given given the choice, right, I think there's like a, a scale there, right, where uh, hosting dinner parties for visiting people is pretty is like way low. He would yeah, probably rather be uh, captaining a ship right now if he can do that. But that's not available. But he can go, you know, throw a fire extinguisher in a mystical barrier. And that's at least something that's better than hosting a dinner party. Right. Yeah, I guess so. But he was so excited to see Reboon City because he's a huge fan. Um, and it just it would have worked better to me if he was. Because of responsibility, and it maybe it doesn't work since Rebo and Zudi are the people there, and there isn't someone who's more serious. But if there was some reason why he had to stay at the dinner party and then constantly was on the calm in the corner checking back in with, you know, work if it if it was that trope of like the person who can't disconnect from work and is trying to orchestrate things remotely. So it was constantly asking for updates from CNC. But not, at, but then feeling powerless and then having the discussion, I think with Rebo and Zudi, maybe even and Delenn about like his challenges of feeling that he is not in a position to help because somewhat, you know, transitioning into this conversation about one of the things that Rebo and Zudi bring up, um, probably just as a means of delivering some jokes here, but, um, uh, it's not entirely clear, um, is to talk about like they're thinking about giving up comedy because in comedy they say serious things in a funny way so people don't take them serious. So maybe they should go into politics because that's important. It matters more for people, although maybe then they'd just be going to clown school because people, you know, are really ridiculous there. But because they say things in a serious way, then people take them seriously. So they should take things seriously. And I think a couple things are going on here. I think, first of all, this kind of goes into, we've talked about this before when talking about Neil Gaiman's work, um, but here it's expanding from um, kind of writers of literature and short stories to writers of jokes. But uh, we've got kind of the, there's a, there's a, specific focus that those who create things serve that has a cultural benefit that even if some people don't think there's a benefit, you know, like comic books, there is a benefit to the creation and the art that is the comic. Um, and so while some people may look down on it, um, and some people may look down on comedians as not providing useful function, you know, Sheridan's responses, but no, the whole reason why we, one of the thing, reasons why we are trying to do all this good politics is to preserve freedom for people to laugh. And also in the darkest of times, you provided us an outlet. And also you were able to say things because you said them in a funny way that you could get away with it where others couldn't make it past the censors. And so in that way, I think it's kind of goes with the larger kind of themes that Neil builds into a lot of his work. It's also a good excuse to make fun of politicians. Yeah, the sentiment of this is something that we have seen before, right? The idea is that stories matter, art matters, artists and creative people matter. They are doing good things in the the, the world. And, you know, that the idea that, that politics exists in order to create a society where 
people can be devoted to that work uh, is, you know, that's a sentiment that I can get behind. I'm, I'm not sure it's an accurate description of what politics is for or how politics works uh, and so on, but it's a definitely a sentiment that I can get behind. And it's one that we we have seen Gaiman write before and we will see him do it again. There's one more thing we should talk about with uh, Remo and Zudi with Penn and Teller before we uh, move on to the final thing we need to talk about here that you have uh, hinted at already, Brent, which is that there is also this gag about Zudi not talking. He's got this machine voiced by Harlan Ellison, but Rebo does tell Sheridan that he has heard Zudi break character one time, only one time, but it has happened once uh, where he actually spoke. He said something, but the only thing that he said was, why? That's, That's just all he said. And, you know, no context to that at all. And then at the end of the episode, Zudi breaks character again to speak to Sheridan. And so, you know, only the second time he's ever broken character, as far as we know. And he just whispers something in Sheridan's ear, and then Sheridan relays what he said to another character. Uh, That character is Jakar, who we'll talk about in just a moment. Uh, But what Zudi says is, because it tells me to. And I wasn't quite certain what that line is about, but my sense is that it's the answer to why, right? Why? Well, because it tells me to. But so what? What does that mean to you, Brent? I wasn't sure what to make of that because he also he points at his hat. It looks like when he says because it tells me to, um, which on the one hand I guess it, it's probably supposed to be a reference to like why do comedy versus politics or you know it, it's something about going with your gut like you know why do X when logically maybe it seems like you should do Y because something just tells you you should do X so like trust your intuition intuition to some extent. Without going into too many details, because he pointed his hat, though, I ominously was thinking about uh, things being placed on or about the head or shoulder that might control you and puppet <laughs> you in some ways um, that are connected with the show, which made the whole thing ominous in a way that I don't think it all was intended by the script. Um, but I think it was an unfortunate thing, but kind of an inescapable thing if you're at this point in the Babylon 5, I think. By this point in the Babylon 5, like series, you have seen indications of what I'm referring to. Um, and, um, yeah, so I don't, it doesn't quite work for me, uh, because of that other kind of ominous intonation. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I I didn't make that connection. I actually did not think that the the it in that sentence, uh, which is a brilliant bit of vague writing there, right, to use a pronoun instead of uh, uh, the actual you know noun that you're referring to. I didn't think that it referred to the hat. I thought that it was probably the machine. Oh. So my you know my ominous reading here was that uh, Zudi doesn't control the machine. The machine controls Zudi. Uh, but but again, that's to just no consequence here in this episode. So I really didn't know what to to make of it, and I I had to wonder if it if this is all not some kind of in joke for somebody else. I don't know. Maybe this is just something that Gaiman and Shazinsky shared together, or it's about something in Babylon Five that just you and I aren't remembering because we didn't binge watch the entire series up to this episode in order to prepare for it. So this is something I would love to hear listeners uh, chime in about if you're uh, you know more current on Babylon Five than uh, than either of us is or have any insight or ideas about this. So it would be uh, it'd be fun to try to figure that out. But uh, we do have one more thing we should do before we wrap up this episode and and get out out of here. Uh, and that is to talk about this character, Jakar, who we've mentioned a few times. Jakar is uh, a Narn. He's not a human. He's a member of the Narn species. He is a uh, religious figure of some sort. His people, the Narn people, are 
oppressed. They're they're conquered by the Centauri. They've been conquered by the Centauri. They fought for their independence and then are reconquered by the Centauri. In fact, that's all wrapped up in the the first deal that Londo makes with uh, with Mister Morden on his journey to selling his soul is to reconquer Narn to so that the Centauri Republic or the Centauri Star Empire uh, can get their groove back, basically. And Jakar is kind of a religious figure, is a holy figure. He's he's Paul Atreides more or less. I mean, he doesn't have all the powers that Paul Atreides has, but he's Paul Atreides, basically. So he's interested in religion. He's this prophetic figure for his people. And as you said, Brent, he tries to prevent the Day of the Dead, though not in any way that's like remotely a good attempt. He just says, don't do this. You can't do this. It's dangerous without ever explaining how. It says nothing specific. It's not a good attempt. Uh, tries to prevent the Day of the Dead, and then he avoids the Day of the Dead by sleeping on the floor of the uh, command center of the station, because I guess you know there are no hotels or hostels on this station. He has no friends who have a couch or anything <laughs> like that. I thought that was a bit strange, but there it is. It's a good gag, right? It's about seeing him in a nightgown, and that's funny. But this... This the third beat in this arc for Jakar is that he actually now regrets that he didn't sleep in his quarters, that he didn't experience the Day of the Dead like everyone else does, because he has observed that everyone who did experience it is now this morning seeming like they're they're better for it, that they're more optimistic, they're more hopeful, that there's a you know a zing in their step or something like that. You know, that 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 he wishes that he had had this profound religious experience that everyone else had gotten. Yeah, it was kind of a strange take, and I, I'm not sure how much I believe it from Jakar, but I, I think that his observation that everyone seems to have an extra spring in their step, and looking back on how everyone but Lanier, particularly, um, interacted to their guests, where like no one, everyone seemed not at all surprised to, surprised for about 60 seconds, and then they get over it. And then everyone except for Lanier seems to pretty much make what they can with the limited time that they have, whether it's finding out something that, you know, they've always kind of wanted to know, even though it kind of terrifies them in terms of uh, Lockley and Zoe, whether it's just, you know, relivering some good memories and, um, you know, with Dodger, um, if you're Garibaldi, um, and um, Londo with um, Adira. I mean, it makes sense why everyone kind of does have, you know, had a good experience, but I don't know if I believe that Jakar would run from this experience, given his quest for spiritual enlightenment that kind of takes over his life round about the third season onward, that he wouldn't, in fact, you know, be dubious about it, but maybe intentionally even stay in his quarters. It, it works for the plot of the episode to bookend things with Jakar, but I don't know how true it feels to the character of Jakar that he would have swung so wildly from point A to point B. But but I don't know. What what do you think, Glenn? Well, I think you're right. I th- I think that he would actually be doing the thing that we see Lanier doing. That he would be the one seeking this out. That he's interested in religion. I mean, not that Lanier is not, uh, but. Jakar would also be interested in this. He, he and, and in fact, Lanier is interested in religion in a sort of comparative religion scholarly sense. Uh, Jakar is interested in spirituality. He is on this quest for enlightenment and that he would want to experience the mysticism of this. I think Lanier is interested in experience 
experiencing another culture's rituals, but Jakar would be interested in the actual numinous experience here, the mystical experience here. And so, you know, given that that this all starts with him insisting that Lockley should not do this, she should not allow this uh, ritual to have the power here on the station, it's clear that Jakar knows something about the Day of the Dead, uh, though it's also then becomes clear later that what he thinks he knows is is wrong. He's misunderstood something. But because we, the audience, don't ever hear that, and also Lockley doesn't ever hear it, he doesn't ever say it to anybody, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us from a character motivation standpoint, right? But I think we just have to assume that he has heard something really awful about this ritual. What that would be, I can't really imagine. Uh, because I would think it would have to be something that actually would be so heinous that if he just blurted it out to Lockley, that Lockley would have second thoughts about signing the paperwork that turns the station over or the part of the station over to the Brakiri. Like, you know, they eat dead children on this holiday or something like that, you know, something really horrific, something really gruesome like that. But we just don't get that. So it does make his motivation a little bit difficult to understand, but I like the way it wraps up. So I'm willing to, you know, give the introduction of it a pass because I think it is nice to have a character on the outside looking in and, and, and to comment on how this experience seems to have positively affected people. Though I think you're also right to wonder, or, you know, to point out that he obviously didn't talk to Lanier. Well, I think that is a good note to bring this episode to a close. So we'll uh, we'll wrap it up here. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums or a subreddit and let us know what you thought of Day of the Dead. Um, and who of Babylon Fair characters who have passed would you want to talk to if they visited you? Um, or... Would you decide to be best to not risk that it be Mr. Morden? Or if it was Mr. Morden, this is the question that I am now asking myself, what would I ask him and try to like <laughs> spend the whole night getting him to answer? Um, so go ahead and join us in the Clay Temple forums. Tell us what you think of the episode. Um, let us know if there's other episodes we might want to look at that are even Neil Gaiman adjacent on Babylon 5 or elsewhere. Yeah, I, I might actually pick Mr. Morden, uh, but I, I would be set up to to play a you know a, a two person game of Risk or something like that for him. That's all I want to do is a tabletop game with Morden. I think that would be a lot of fun. Well, if you would like to have your say in what we cover over here between Sandman volumes and also what we cover on most of our other shows, and also get access to dozens of bonus episodes, please join us on Patreon. This show and every show that we do on the network is only possible with your support, and we're so grateful to have you with us. Next time, we are getting back to Sandman with the, the beginning of the short story collection, Dream Country. That's going to be the issue, Calliope. Very excited for this one. It's a big, important issue. But until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>